that you've given us. I pray that you would bless us as we reflect on that, as we continue to read and to think and to ponder about your goodness, and as, as we then respond to all of this in song again. And so I pray that you would bless your people that are here this morning. I pray that you would bless them with joy. I pray that you would give them a deep and a sturdy hope. And I pray that you would help us to be a blessing to one another. We pray that for all of your people that are gathered all over this globe on this Sunday morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Y'all can have a seat. We'll go ahead and grab a Bible and turn to Revelation 6. Revelation 6. If you don't have one, you should be able to find a black hardback Bible in the pew rack in front of you. And when you get to Revelation 6, you'll notice that this is where things get good. Yeah, well, this is what we've been excited for in Revelation. We've been looking forward to all of the craziness that's happening, these signs and these symbols and horsemen running forth and all of this craziness. And it's a good thing that Justin asked me to preach this morning because I have the answers. <laughs> I've got charts and tables and I can help you see that it's just three and a half years until we get to the seventh seal and Jesus returns. So you are welcome for that. With this transition, though, we, we've looked through John's first vision of Jesus and his might. We've seen John write these letters from Jesus to the churches. And then the last couple of weeks in Revelation 4 and 5, we were given this grand vision of Jesus being worshipped by all of creation. And when we get to Revelation 6, things get really interesting and maybe a bit strange for us. And so I think at this point, it would be helpful for us to review a couple of things we talked about way back in January. So remember, January is when we started the book of Revelation. And one of the things that we learned about the Revelation is that this is an apocalyptic book. In Greek, it's apocalypsis. And curiously, what that means, we said this back in January, is that this is a revealing, an uncovering, a pulling back of the veil. Now, intriguingly, when we hear the word apocalypse, we tend to think things that are hidden, things that are mysterious, things that are hard to find, or we think of really big kind of cataclysmic destruction, end of everything that is. But apocalypsis means to reveal, to uncover, to make clear. And so I want to help us see that. So uh, you can stay in Revelation 6, but it's going to be a minute before we get there. I want to show you this. It'll be on the screen. So just as an example to help you begin wrapping your mind around this or to refresh you, uh, in the prophet Joel, Joel was a prophet who was sent to God's people, and he had a message for them. So this is Joel 2. I'm going to pick up in verse 28, and here's what Joel says. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood 
before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, I think the way that we're tempted to understand what Joel just said is there's coming a day when God's going to pour out His Spirit, and the sign, the marker that will accompany God's pouring out of His Spirit is the sun is going to go black and the moon is going to get bloodied. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for these signs in the heavens to happen, and then God will pour out His Spirit. But I want you to notice what Peter says about this in Acts 2. So in Acts 2, Jesus has been crucified, he's been buried, he's been resurrected, he hung out with his disciples, he ascended, and then 50 days later, the Spirit is poured out onto Jesus' people, and people are wondering what is happening, and uh, Peter stands up, and he quotes Joel 2 and interprets the things that are happening, And, and here's what he says, Joel 2, 17 And in the last days, notice, curiously, Peter's talking about last days nearly 2,000 years ago. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall see dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Now, we, though, would hear Peter say this, and I think we'd want to say, wait a minute, Peter. The moon hasn't been bloodied, and if the moon hasn't been bloodied, how can the Spirit of God be poured out on God's people. And at this point, we should understand that we've misread Joel 2. Because Joel 2 is apocalypse. It's not intended to tell us literally that the moon is going to be bloodied and that the sun will be darkened. The way that apocalypse works is it takes big catastrophic events and uses those as images for things that we might otherwise miss. Right? So, Apocalypse aims at helping us see the things that would otherwise be easily missable by pulling back the veil, by uncovering what's been covered. And so Joel 2 is talking about this great day when God's Spirit is poured out on God's people. And Joel says this is such a big event that it would be the equivalent of if the moon was bloodied, if the sun was darkened, if those things happened, all of creation would be forever changed and nothing could go back to the way that it was. Joel says that's just what's happening when God's Spirit gets poured out on God's people. And so Peter looks out to the people who just received the Spirit and the other people who are going, what is happening? And Peter says, Joel too has happened. The world has been changed forever and it will never go back. God's Spirit has come down on God's people and history will never be the same. God is acting in the way that He always said He would and the way that He's making sure that you don't miss this huge event is Peter is saying, Joel is saying, it's the equivalent of the moon being bloodied, the sun being darkened. These are big, major events that you must not miss. And because we are a people who easily miss things that we shouldn't miss, apocalyptic literature comes into play and helps us see things that we would otherwise be blind to. So when we read Joel, We're not looking for the sign of a dark sun and a bloody moon before the Spirit comes. We're looking for how important the event is that accompanies the Spirit's 
coming. So that will hopefully set the stage for us in Revelation 6. So if you left Revelation 6, go ahead and head back there. Now, this Revelation 6 is set right after Revelation 5. Now, that sounds obvious, right? Like, of course it is. But there's an important piece that we need to get here because we're on a bit of a roller coaster ride. See, remember, Revelation 5 opens with this scroll being held up and there's seals on the scroll, and we are faced with this sad question of who can open this scroll. Here's this glorious scroll, and there's none in all of heaven that seem to be able to open it until our sorrow is turned into joy when John is pointed to the one who is called a lion and appears as a lamb who then has the power to open this scroll and all of heaven then begins to rejoice and to praise this lamb. And so we move from sorrow and confusion to joy and praise to then Revelation 6, things take another turn. As the lamb begins to pop off the seals from the scroll, we then take a turn and things get difficult and things get painful. Now, typically on a Sunday morning, we would at this point go ahead and read Revelation 6. But because Revelation is so difficult at these times, and because it's so easy to chase rabbit trails, and we could start in verse 1, and I think many of us would begin wondering and thinking and wondering often in different places to what's going on, and we'd miss the rest of it, I want to slow down a minute. I want to try to sketch a little bit of a framework for us so that when we read Revelation 6, we don't have the distractions around us, so that we can actually focus and pay attention through the whole thing. And the high point of this morning's sermon, I want to just be the reading of Revelation 6 together. This also, one of the reasons that I think this is crucial for us as we begin into this section of Revelation where things get a little bit goofy and strange, this, if we misunderstand it, it's a little bit like having to explain a joke. All right, so you've been there. Someone says that two guys walk into a bar and one guy ducks, and everybody laughs except for one person who's not real sure what just happened and asks for the joke to be explained. And once you explain the joke, it's, it's robbed of its humor, right? It's no longer funny. We've missed the point. The joke is robbed. It's shortened. It's shrunk down when you have to explain it. And furthermore, if People hear that joke, and then they begin to talk about, well, how high was the bar? And what was the bar made of? And what was this pointing to? And what was the building that the bar... Like, you're not understanding the point of the joke. We're prone to that with Revelation as well. We start wandering off into different directions that aren't the point of what Revelation is after. And so I want to try to give us a little bit of some framework to help us think through and read uh, this really beautiful, important book. So, um, Revelation 6 begins with the opening of the seals on this scroll. And you'll notice there's seven seals. The first six we find in Revelation 6. Then in Revelation 7, we get this break where we see God again worshipped and praised by all of these people. And we don't get to the seventh seal being opened until Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. There's a little bit of a break there. That pattern will get replayed. So one of the things you should have in your mind as we begin traveling through uh, this section of Revelation, is we're going to see things repeated over and over, but in different ways. So today we're looking at the first six seals, but after the seals come trumpets, and after the trumpets come bowls, and there's seven of each, 
And some similar patterns and things happen with each of them. And so one of the things that will help you as you read through this is it's helpful to think of these not as consecutive events where all of uh, the seals are broken and that tells us about this section of history and then the trumpets happen and this tells us about this section of history and then the uh, bowls get poured out and that tells us about the next section of history. But that these are three different ways of helping us see the things that God is doing in God's world. And so you'll notice there's the six, then we get a break with worship, and then we have the seventh. That pattern will get replayed several times. And you'll notice that there's something similar about the first four seals. They kind of stand together. All of them have to do with these horsemen. And then the other three are a little bit different. And so this pattern from four to three different ones is also going to get replayed with the trumpets and with the bowls. And so just kind of keep an eye out for that. And so John begins in Revelation 6 to tell us about these seals. And the first two verses tell us about the first seal that is broken. And when the first seal is broken, one of the creatures says, Come, and out comes this horse. This is going to be the same pattern that we see for the first four seals. And so in the first seal, it's a white horse. And this white horse, you see, is given the power to conquer. This, I think means there's warfare happening. The first horse is symbolizing warfare and destruction and pain and death. And then we meet the second horse. So the same pattern, right? The seal is broken. Uh, One of the living creatures says, come, and out comes a horse. But this time the horse is red. And this horse, the rider, is said to have, uh, to be taking peace away from the earth. And I think this is probably pointing us to uh, destructive conquest, division, anarchy, hatred, mess that is happening. Then we see the third pattern happen. Same thing. Seal broken. Living creature says, come. Out comes a horse. But this time the horse is black. And we're told that prices for food is going to skyrocket. This seems to be pointing to famine and to some type of economic collapse. And then the fourth seal, same pattern, only this time the horse is a deathly pale color, and there's death that is widespread through here. Now, church, at this point, I have news for you. It seems very clear that the first horse that is going out and conquering and destroying and invading is obviously secularism. Right? It's spreading, it's taking over everything, and then comes this second horse that brings division and bloodshed, and that's obviously happening right now, right? Have you ever seen America more divided? And then clearly, the third one, with this economic collapse, we saw that back in 2008 with the housing crisis, right? And then the fourth, with this plague and death, that was COVID. No. <laughs> right, like, but you see how easy that is. So last week, Justin gave you your monthly reminder that Revelation has no S on it. Here's your reminder that people say stupid things about Revelation and you shouldn't listen to them. (laughs) If it sounds too crazy, it is. If it sounds too convenient, it is. Okay? So the first four seals are broken. We're introduced to this widespread war, this division, this strife, this famine and economic collapse, and this just general death. This sounds, sadly, 
like a fairly typical day in our world. We then get to the fifth seal. That happens in verse 9. And you notice when the fifth seal is open, things change. Now there's no more living creature. We've already used up all four of them. There's no voice that says come. There's no horse or horseman. Now we're given this vision under the altar. And we have the saints crying out. And they are calling for God to avenge them. For God to set things right. For God to finally act in the way that he has promised to do. And they are given a white robe. They are told to rest. And then we move on. The sixth seal is then opened in verse 12. And you notice the sixth seal is really interesting. There's lots of things that happen in the sixth seal, and it all seems to accompany this wrath of the Lamb that you see at the end of it. Now, remember, we're reading Apocalypse. The point of Apocalypse is to make clear, to reveal, to help us see things that we otherwise wouldn't see. And so you notice in the sixth seal, there's these pictures of creation being undone. Stars are falling down like leaves off of a fig tree. Mountains and islands are galloping across the horizon, running away. The sky is split in half and reeled back, kind of like a tape measure. What you shouldn't do at this point is begin looking for these things to actually happen. Remember, what this is telling us is the wrath of the Lamb of God is so severe, is so strong, is so mighty that it has the power to undo creation in the same way that if mountains and islands started running across the horizon, in the same way that if stars started falling from the sky, things would be undone, we would have no hope, we would not know what to do. John and Jesus here are helping us see that the wrath of the Lamb is something serious. It's something we ought not to miss. It's something on the level of stars coming crashing from the heavens onto the earth. So we should pay heed to the wrath of the Lamb. And I also want you to notice that it's the Lamb who is wrathful. That's a strange thing, right? We were, last week in Revelation 5, we heard about this lion. And wrath and lion fit neatly together. But when John turns to see that what he's just heard is a lion, he then sees a, a bloody lamb, and we then find out that this bloody lamb also has wrath. He's angry. He's frustrated by this sin, and he will not let it go unpunished. And all of these seals begin to punish. So at this point, I want to read Revelation 6 together. And as we do... Hopefully we've got a little bit of framework to help us think so we don't get too distracted and run in different directions and we can listen closely to what it is that John is saying. And I want you to put yourself in the shoes of one of the seven churches. So you've just heard these letters read to you. You've just heard Jesus encourage you, challenge you, rebuke you, give you promises. You've, been, you've seen this vision of Jesus worshipped in the heavens. And then you get to Revelation 6 and he, I want you to put yourself in those shoes because you, friends, have the same spirit dwelling in your midst that those seven churches did. And because of that, Revelation is also for you. 
And so as I read Revelation 6, I want you to let it kind of wash over you. As these terrifying things happen, allow your imagination to go with that. Revelation is an imaginative book. And so picture these things and let Revelation 6 be a help to you. So picking up in verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud, with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. And when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider was named Death. And Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. And the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? What is the church to do with this message? One thing that you should, I think that John clearly intends us to do, is to keep reading. And we will do that, but not this morning. The second thing I think we should do, and this is something I want you to absorb this morning. I want you to take this in. It's clear in Revelation 6, and we can't say clear about a whole lot in Revelation, but we can say it about this, that God's unfolding plan 
requires his people to endure. As God's plan unfolds, as God plays out history according to his will, it calls you and I and those who've come before us and those who will come after us, it calls us to be an enduring people. Remember, the point of apocalypse is to help us see the significance of events we might otherwise miss. You and I, I think we've become so used to hearing about wars and seeing strife and seeing countries turned in on each other and seeing famine and pestilence and plague and sickness and death. We've become so used to seeing all of this that we can become numb to it. That it can feel like this is nothing that significant. But what Revelation 6 tells us is this actually is significant. This is God unworking, unfolding His plan. And all of this, remember, don't forget where Revelation ends. All of this is working to a particular place. This isn't going nowhere. Revelation is working to the end of God redeeming His creation of God saving his people, of God undoing the evil that is present all around. That's where Revelation is going. It's going to God fulfilling all of his promises that he's made. And the path to that end, Revelation 6 tells us, is one that is marked by war and by bloodshed and by suffering and hunger and disease and his saints waiting for God to do the thing that he's promised and to avenge their blood. All of these things are happening as we move to God fulfilling his plan. And so church, don't become numb. These are big events. That's why John is using language like islands running away and being moved from their place, like the sky being split in half and rolled back on each side. He wants you to see how significant this is. God's not doing nothing. And so here's some good news for you, church. This means the suffering that you endure is not meaningless, right? Like, as you live your life and as you face suffering, Revelation 6 tells us that it's not meaningless. We can't forget where Revelation is heading, that God is using this as the path to get to his end. Here's some good news for you. This means that pain and suffering and death and disease and chaos don't get the final word right? Revelation ends with Jesus on the throne, with new heavens and new earth, with his people gathered together, with them praising and singing his glories for all of eternity, death, destruction, pain, sickness, sorrow. These things in your life don't get the final word. No. Jesus' saints, when they cry out for God to act, They're not told, go to a corner and be quiet. They're given a robe, a white robe. They're they're given the gift that they will be victorious, that they will be conquerors, that they will have life. And they're not told, get used to it. They're told, rest 
and wait. What does that mean? That means God's going to act. God doesn't make promises and not fulfill them like so many of us do. When God says he's going to do something, he does it. And so God doesn't tell his saints, no. God says, wait, rest, trust. As a child, you who have kids know this. When they want to eat chocolate for all of their meals, you don't tell them, sure. Right? You make them eat good food, and you don't get into like a scientific debate with them about why certain foods are better than others. You just tell them, no, you can't have chocolate for dinner. Trust me. I think that's what God is after here. He, he's not explaining why he's doing the things that he's doing. You see that? He's telling you what's going to happen. He's telling you where it's all moving. But if you're wanting to know why does God's plan have to move through all of these painful stages, I don't have an answer for you. I don't know that Revelation gives us an answer. Much like Job, who after enduring all of his suffering and he asked God why, God didn't answer his question why. God simply reminded Job who he was. So with Revelation, God calls us to wait. God calls us to trust. And God says he will do when he will do. And so God's unfolding plan requires us, requires his people to endure. Now here's the question for you. If God is calling us to endure, and not just endure anything, but Revelation 6 is some pretty scary things. These are significant sufferings Jesus is calling his people to endure and to wait through. Where do we get the strength to endure? Like, where does this come from? I want to point you to two things. Number one, notice what Jesus says to the saints who cry out and ask that same question. He gives them a robe and he tells them to trust. So for you, so for me. Where do we get the strength? We look to Jesus. Jesus gives us righteousness. Jesus gives us hope. And we trust. But the second thing I want you to notice, John, as he's writing Revelation, he is so helpful. Jesus, as he's dictating this to John, is so helpful. Notice where Revelation 6 is located. What happens right before Revelation 6? Well, John gets this vision, this vision of Jesus being worshipped by all of creation. And then Revelation 6 happens, and Revelation 6 is hard and painful and frightening. And then you get to Revelation 7, and what happens in Revelation 7? The same thing, similarly at least, that happened in Revelation 5. All of God's saints are gathered together, and what are they doing? They're praising, they're worshipping the one who sits on the throne. And so the question that we ask is, how do we endure the things that Jesus calls us to endure? How do we see these seals broken and God's unfolding plan and the pain and the suffering that saints have died under, been put under the altar under and told to wait for more of their number to be added? How do we endure? How do we continue and be faithful through that? Well, John bookends this with worship. 
the way that God's people endure is by worshiping now and looking forward to the day when we will worship with nothing else hindering us. When everything will be set right. When the Lamb is seated on the throne and all people bow down to His name and worship Him, the strength to endure through suffering and through trial comes from worship. This is a strange weapon that Jesus has given His people. This is why we gather together Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday because this gives us the strength that we need. We are there with one another. We bend our ear to hear what Jesus has said and we seek to be obedient as we look forward to God fulfilling all that He has said He is going to do. And so you, Christian, you are called to be a worshiping people. This is the power that God has given to you to bring you through the suffering, to fix your eye on the day when God fulfills His promises, and to give you hope until that happens. Jesus calls His people, He calls you and He calls me to be an enduring people. Pray with me. Jesus, we confess you rule, that you reign, that you are in control, and that you work things out according to your good purposes and good plan. We confess that, that we don't understand all of the things that you are doing, but we delight in you. We trust you. We pray that you would help us to trust you more. We're thankful that you've not just left us on our own, but that you have come, that you've taken on flesh, that you died for our sins, that you paid the price, that you've given us new life and a new hope, and that you've given us your very own spirit so that we might faithfully follow you. And so I pray that you would help us to do that. I pray that you would help us to encourage one another to that end. That you would fill us with joy and with satisfaction as we gaze on your beauty, as we reflect on the things you've called us to do. Lord Jesus, make us faithful, we pray, because we're not able to do it on our own. And so be with your people. May we find joy, a deep, abiding, rooted, stable sense of joy in recognizing who you are, and in looking forward to the day when you make all things new and when we gather around your throne to sing your praises with no end. May that satisfy us in our deepest desire. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together.